following sermon was delivered on December 27th, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled A Few Good Men, Part 2, on 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. We have been thinking about God as our shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to shepherd His flock. And the sheepfolds of the shepherd are the various congregations of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the shepherd gathers his sheep into his flock, he will bring them into various folds throughout the world. And over each fold, the shepherd has appointed those whom he refers to as under-shepherds, the pastors and the elders of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elders are an essential part of God's eternal plan of redemption because the church is an essential part of God's eternal plan of salvation. He's appointed the church to be the agent through which the Spirit will gather and perfect the saints. And He is the one who's revealed that the church shall be led and pastored and ruled and cared for by elders whom He calls under shepherds. And we began last week to look at this passage and decided uh, that we would cut off the sermon in something of the middle of it uh, by considering the theme that you have here in your bulletin, and that is that because the office of elder is a noble office, a man must have personal, domestic, and ecclesiastical qualifications. So we looked in the first place last week at the dignity of the office of elder, an office that is has dignity because it is the office appointed by Christ by which he's going to care for his people. We noted that the elder is identified by two different titles. He's a bishop. That means he has care for the oversight of the souls, the lives of the people. And he is an elder. And I showed you last week, the terms are synonymous. He is an elder because he must be a man of spiritual maturity. Paul then begins to unpack what he means by spiritual maturity uh, in these qualifications. And I broke them out for you into three different categories. The personal qualifications of the office bearer, the domestic qualifications of the office bearer, and the ecclesiastical qualifications of the office bearer. Now, the personal qualifications are listed here. He must be above reproach generally in all that he is. Husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, are pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, and free from the love of money. Now, I summarized those under five headings for you, beginning with M, to help you remember. I didn't follow them in the order, but to take the five M's of the personal qualifications we have that the elder is to be a man who is of moral purity, a man who is moderate in his habits, a man who is mannerly, not a money grubber or murmurer, and then uh, one who has spiritual maturity. So the elder is to be a man of uh, 
moral purity and chastity, a man of moderate habits, a man who is mature, a man who is mannerly, a man who is not a money-grubbing murmurer. We come now to the domestic qualifications of the elder. And Paul lays it out very briefly in this, that he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Paul, as he speaks here, what I'm calling domestic qualifications, he speaks both of how a man uh, operates his household and how he uses his household. So how does he operate his household? Well, Paul says he is to be one who manages his household well. Now, this reminds us that the... Uh, the elder, the office bearer in the church, the minister, the ruling elder, is the one who is over the entirety of his household and the one who is ultimately responsible for all that goes on in the household. Now, by saying that he's to manage the household, Paul's not saying he's to do everything. No, he is to, uh, to delegate to those who would have greater strengths and time and, and uh, gifts in certain areas. But as the manager of the household, at the end of the day, he would have to say with President Truman, the buck stops here. As the manager of his household, he is responsible for the tenor, uh, the climate of his household, and for its behavior, and for its functioning, for the spiritual well-being of all those who are in the household. Now, as such, Paul uh, would have us break this down into, uh, he is to have a wife in submission, he is to love her sacrificially, and he then is to be a careful father to his children. So in managing the household, uh, this is why then we read Ephesians chapter 5. We see the two aspects of the relationship that needs to be in the household uh, between the husband and the wife. And Paul, on all of these occasions, begins with the responsibility of the wife. So if the husband is managing his household well, that means he's going to have a wife who is in submission. Now, later on in this text, uh, in a couple of weeks, we will look at some of the aspects, the piety of the wife of the office bearer. But here, just to touch on this one thing that would be essential to a man managing his household well, is that the wife must be one who is in submission. That does not mean that the husband is to rule over her with an iron fist, uh, to make all decisions unilaterally and dictatorially. No, remember, as we've already said in the past, she's been given as the helper corresponding to his needs. She is a partner in this relationship. And that means that uh, he is to seek her advice and her counsel. And he is to listen to her. His, his headship doesn't mean that he does not learn from her or should not listen to her. But where submission comes to play then is when after discussing it and they don't agree, a decision has to be made. And the man who manages his household well must make that decision. That doesn't have to always be his way. He can make a decision that will do it the way that his wife or his family want to go. But this, ladies, as you well know, is where submission um, hits the road. As long as you agree, there's no need for submission. But the moment you don't agree, and the husband then makes a decision with which you don't agree, that's when you must humble yourself under his headship. 
even if he's not acted in the best manner about it, even if he's not been as tender about it. Once he makes that decision, unless it's a decision that contradicts the will of God, then you are joyfully to submit. Now, that's not easy, and it's not easy because of the fall. Part of the curse that God gave to womanhood because of Eve removing herself from under the headship of Adam in her conversation with the serpent is that headship be something a woman will always lust against and push back against. And so you need God's grace uh, to humble yourself in this position of headship. But I remind you men that headship is, submission is not something you can enforce. If your wife does not grant submission freely and joyfully, then you must bear with that. Which brings us to the second thing in managing one household well, as Paul develops it in Ephesians 5, is that we as men must love our wives sacrificially. What a standard, as Christ loves the church. So that we will spend for her, we will sacrifice for her, we will deprive ourselves for her and her well-being. And that our headship then is to be exercised for her spiritual well-being. Again, as the pattern shows us, that Christ is doing all of this, that he can present to himself a church that's pure and spotless. We want to present our wives and our children to God as those who have become uh, preeminent in holiness because we've sought to love them in the way that Christ loves the church. Paul also gives us the basis of this domestic requirement with respect to the family. And that is, as he says, that if the husband cannot manage the small thing, his household how will he take care of the church of God? And so it becomes the way then that a man manifests that he has what we'll talk about in a bit, the leadership ability in this little sphere of responsibility. If he cannot there manage a household, have order and peace and joy, then he cannot be expected to manage the larger household of God. So it's a it's a very important thing to keep in mind. Does this mean that every office bearer has to be a married man? Well, not at all. We compare Scripture with Scripture. Paul says there are those who have the gift of being single, that they might devote themselves even more to the church. But such a man still has a household to run. He still is a man that will uh, have to manage his own affairs. Uh, and... Uh, have the next qualification we'll talk about, which is hospitality. I know three single pastors, every one of them exemplary in all of these things. Um, and so, but that is the rarity, as it is with any man to be single, but that does not let a man be an office bearer in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember, as we said last week, as we talk about these things, we're not just talking about elders or, or ministers, we're talking about every one of us individually. Each of us has these various roles uh, in his or her calling in the church, Lord Jesus Christ, as women and as uh, and wives and mothers and, and then as children, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. And um, we each examine himself or herself by these qualifications so that we will seek God prayerfully, that we will uh, 
also grow and develop in these areas. Now, the other part of managing the household then is to have children. As Paul says here, that he keeps his children under control with all dignity. Now, again, Titus expands on this concept for us in chapter 1, where he says, having children who are faithful, that word believe is the same word that's used down there in verse 9, the faithful word. Children who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So part of managing the one's household well is to have children who are in order. For a child to be faithful, that means that he is living in the household faithfully according to God's covenant. Paul puts it to Titus both positively, faithfully, but then negatively, not in dissolution or in corruption. And so our children are to be those because of our headship who manifest covenant faithfulness. This is not saying that every child of an elder, if he's worthy to be an elder, is to be born again or regenerated. God's sovereign in that work. Uh, we can't control that. Um, God doesn't promise us if we raise all of our children just as they ought to be raised, that he'll save them. Now, he does warn us if we neglect these things, there's a much serious, more serious possibility they'll be unconverted. But what Paul is saying here is that the elder must be a man uh, as it's spelled out there in Ephesians chapter 6, who seeks to bring up his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord by teaching, praying, by being an example, by discipline, the elder is to shape alongside with his wife the spiritual nurture and culture of their children, aiming to present them to Christ as those also who are perfect and spotless, washed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a solemn responsibility. R.L. Dabney says to fathers that it's, you're responsible for his depravity, which puts all the more weight upon you to do all that you can uh, in your being uh, to nurture your child in the fear of the Lord. And so we must give ourselves then to uh, the instruction of our children as well as our wives and to their discipline. And they understand, they'll only understand the faithfulness of God's word when your word is faithful. If your word is yes and no and back and forth and you don't enforce what you say, that is the place they learn about authority. That's the place they learn about God's word. You're the closest thing of God to them in their experience. And you must be faithful in your words then. And you must enforce those words and not let them wear you out, drag you around, arguing, and whatever. Now, there must be loving but faithful discipline. So he says, with dignity, which also means that we're to do this honorably, not in anger. In Colossians, he says, don't exasperate them, don't provoke them to wrath by inconsistency or hypocrisy, but to handle oneself with that dignity of the office of elder. Now, if one's children at home begin to rebel, even when an elder's children or anybody else's, they're to be brought to the elders, just as a recalcitrant child in the old covenant would be brought to the elders. In that case, there was a death penalty. 
In our case, though, there's the serious admonitions and eventually putting them out of the church as older children who refuse to submit to God's covenant. Now, should such a man step down from office? Well, I think he should temporarily uh, because his kids need him to devote himself to them. Has he been disqualified from office? That will depend on how he's managed his household. If this problem in the household is in response to his poor household management, yes, he's disqualified himself. If not, step down, work on these things, come back. What about a child who has been covenantally faithful at home, leaves home, and then begins to walk away from the covenant? I don't think that disqualifies a man from the ministry, although he should, again, with his peers, evaluate himself. Were there things in my household, in my management, that contributed to uh, these current problems in the life of my child? And so the elder is to manage his household well, his wife, himself, his children, that he might manage God's household well. That's the, the management of the family. But he also talks about the use of the house, or the, the management of the house, the use of the house, as one simple word, and that is he's to be hospitable. Immediately disabuse yourself of the notion that hospitality is a gift. Hospitality is not a gift. Hospitality is a biblical commandment given to the body of Christ. Hospitality is basically using our homes and possessions to serve others either in the body or in the broader world around us. By sharing meals, by having somebody stay over temporarily a brief period of time in your house, we do so for evangelism, we do so for discipleship, we do so for Christian fellowship. We do so when people are passing through and visitors are at the church. Later, as we begin to organize, we will have organized hospitality. Every Lord's Day, there'll be families that will be committed to having visitors to their homes. And if not, we just grab each other and, and go along together. And there's also a more radical type of, type of hospitality. That's not something that every family uh, should be committed to or have the gifts to do. This does matter gifts. And this is when you have somebody come and live with you long term. Uh, perhaps an unwed mother. Perhaps somebody who's wrestling with financial problems needs to be mentored and discipled many other types of situations, and some of us at various times in our lives will give ourselves to that type of hospitality as well. But at the forefront, it must be the ministers and the elders and their wives that are exercising this hospitality as a pattern to the congregation. One of those areas where you say, follow me as I follow Christ. First, having people into our home so they will know exactly what it means to do. You don't have to have nice things. It doesn't have to be an elaborate meal. Some of the best times we have is when come home with us and have leftovers. Um, it's just using what God's given us for others. But what is essential? It's not that you have nice things or much money for food, but that your house be a place that people want to be in. It's got to be a semblance of order and cleanliness so that people will enjoy being there. Otherwise, they're not going to come back. I was at a house one time, and before supper, the cat was up on the table. I never went back. <laughs> anyway, 
These are the domestic qualifications for elders. These are the calling for all of us in the body of Christ. And this hospitality is so important as we will be together. And we, we've been blessed. You know, we've had a number of these Sunday Lord's Day evenings in people's homes, particularly as the Homs began to organize those activities. And if you've been there, you know just the element that brings to, to a congregation uh, of love and fellowship and joy. And that's what hospitality accomplishes. So the domestic qualifications of the office bearer. He must be one who manages his household well, which means that uh, he has a wife that is in submission. He loves her sacrificially, and they are seeking to rear their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. For if a man cannot do that, he cannot manage the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This leads us then to the, uh, the fourth uh, qualification that we have here, and that is the ecclesiastical qualifications uh, for office. Here we have one qualification, <coughs> or two qualifications, and one warning. So with respect to the qualifications, the first one is tucked away above in the personal qualifications in verse 2, the very last clause, that he is to be able to teach. Again, Titus expands on this for us in verse 6. Not verse 6, verse uh, 9. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So the first part of being apt to teach is this holding fast to the word of sound doctrine that is the faithful word. And that means the elder must be a man of the book. He must know the word of God. He must know his confessional standards. And he must be a man who is developed both in his grasp of theology and of practical theology. He must be a man who to some degree, reads and stores up this information. But of course, that should be true for every one of us as well. That as those who want to grow in Christ, it should be our commitment to hold fast to the, the words, the faithful words of sound doctrine. And so that you should be in the Word daily, you should be in your standards, and you should be reading good Christian books. But the apt to teach part, what does Paul mean by that? Well, I think Titus gives us what I consider the essentials. And that is that he must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Every ruling elder does not have to have the gift of public teaching. Obviously, every teaching elder must have the gift of public teaching. But every ruling elder does not need that gift. But he does need this gift, this ability to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute an error, which means as he does his pastoral work, as he visits and he goes from home to home and his people would come to him because they recognize that this is an elder, a mature and godly man and seek wisdom, that he's going to be able to go into his storehouse, what he has learned from Scripture, and to teach, to exhort, to encourage, as well as to point out the error that is in their lives. So every ruined elder needs to be a well-trained theologian, maybe not the gift of public speaking, but surely having the knowledge and the discernment and the heart both to teach people the truth, to encourage them in their walk, as well as to warn them 
about errors in their thinking are in the world around them. And of course, there will then be those elders who have the gift of public teaching as well. And that will manifest itself in their ability to teach, their ability to participate in public worship and, and leading in prayer and other activities like that as well. The second thing, qualification. And here it's interesting because as Paul gets into what I'm calling ecclesiastical, it's the word for church qualifications, he's basically uh, talking now more about gifts than he is sanctification. Now, just as we grow in sanctification, we also can grow in the development of gifts. And we don't have to stay static. Um, I remember the story of uh, Stonewall Jackson, who tried to pray at the public prayer meeting and made a fool of himself. He was embarrassed. The pastor was embarrassed. The congregation was embarrassed. He was so convicted that if he was going to be a deacon in the church, that he had to be able to participate in the prayer meeting. He trained himself. So eventually he was able to lead in prayer in the prayer meeting in a very effective way. So these are also things that we can develop. It might be there's a ruined elder who doesn't have the gift of public teaching, but who might want to try to develop the gift of public teaching. It's the same way that a seminary student develops the gift of public teaching and preaching. So they're gifts. Now this second qualification is this matter of leadership. So it's found in the term that if he cannot manage his household, how can he take care of, oversee the church? And here Paul is pointing out that there is a leadership portion as well to the qualifications of elders. He touches on it in a couple other places. In Romans chapter 12, Paul lists what I think are the gifts that God's given to the church that can be manifested in numerous uh, activities and ministries, but basically there are these seven gifts that he lays out for us in Romans chapter 12. All seven must belong to the teaching elder, six must belong to the ruling elder, and at least three belong to the deacons. But in verse 8, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence. And here we see that one of the gifts of the eldership is ability to lead. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes in verse 28 that God's appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, and administrations. So here in these terms, uh, helps, administrations, uh, leading the church, taking care of the church, Paul is laying out this other ecclesiastical qualification. The elder must be a man who can lead. Like the tribe of Nathalai, who knew the times and what the people of God must do. A man who can recognize what problems are and how one solves problems. And one who can work together with others to, to cast a vision uh, for the church. Now, one of the advantages of a multiple eldership is we will have different leadership strengths. Uh, there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors, and the great thing is, is that as these elders come together with different insights, different leadership styles, they can work together. And that is a blessed church, a church that has men who are able to lead, uh, can set a vision for a congregation, can address difficulties and solve problems, and lead the church forward. Two qualifications and then a warning at the end of this section under the Ecclesiastical Qualifications, 
Paul says that he must not be a new convert, word literally is a neophyte, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We can break this into two parts. In the first place, he's not to be a new convert, not a, not a neophyte. He might be very gifted. He might be a, a man who's is full of zeal and immediately manifests many of these uh, uh, qualifications. But he's an untested man in the first place. Later, under deacons, Paul will say the deacon must be tested. This is the same concept that's here. This is why we go through a procedure, as we talked about last week, that the elders look at a man and say, we think you should think about the eldership, or a man would offer himself to the elders. Uh, then there's a time of testing, of helping person develop gifts and to test them in all the areas that Paul has, has laid out. But the other thing is, is that, and I feel, sometimes I see a really bright seminary graduate, somebody that excels in gifts in every aspect, and immediately the, the church is often pushing these men into places of leadership where they ought not to be because it breeds pride. We all have a problem with pride. But that's what Paul says. That's what he means by the condemnation of the devil. The least thing that he's saying here is the devil's cause of the devil's condemnation was his pride. He was not content with the role that God assigned to him. He wanted more and he rebelled. And pride will lead to that. It leads to division and self-centeredness and strife in the church. But of course, ultimately the devil's condemnation is because of his pride he was condemned. And uh, there can be these men who are neophytes, who are pushed into public spheres or office, and they're not converted. And they then are hardened in their sin because of their place, and they lie under double condemnation, not just the devil's pride, but eternal damnation. So man is to be a tested man in terms of his maturity and spirituality. Now the second warning is very similar, and that is in verse uh, 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And we began last week by saying that he should have a uh, be above reproach, a good reputation in the church, but now in the community with those who are outside the church. This is another reason why you don't put a neophyte into office. What was he like before he was converted? What is the reputation he still has in public? People don't know uh, about the great changes that God has worked into his life. That will bring reproach to the gospel. Or if he's a man who does not have good character, even as an older Christian, he's put into office, that brings reproach to the office of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember hearing a man one time who had been a deacon in a church that I pastored, who in two breaths quoted the Shorter Catechism and then took God's name in vain publicly in a very gross manner. The man brought great reproach on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the greater danger involved in that is what Paul then says, and the snare of the devil. So I've got this reputation, but I'm a church officer. And uh, what that leads to is a hardening of the heart. Man, I can, get, I can get away with this, and I can, I can do that because of who I am. 
And the snare of the devil is that hardening of the conscience that we talked about at the end of chapter 1, where he plunges deeper and deeper into sin. And of course, Satan's going to attack the office bearer. He's going to want to trip us up. Uh, when you read the Psalms, men, recognize that uh, our snares right now are not enemies around us seeking to destroy us physically. Our snares are the trials and temptations and snares that are set by Satan and the demons in our everyday living. And we must beware of them and plead with God to give us grace and mercy. For any of us could fall into the snare of the devil. And so what we've seen here is that because the office of elder is a noble office, um, the elder must have these personal qualifications, he must have domestic qualifications, and he must have ecclesiastical qualifications. Now, what we mean by that is not that he's perfect. I said that last week. This is not perfection, but it is a consistency. It is a striving for and an ideal. But a second thing to keep in mind is it's not that, well, I've got these in 75% of my life, but I don't have 25%. No, it's a package. It's comprehensive. Now, we won't always be as strong in everything, but our lives must be marked by all of these things to some noticeable degree. And third, by God's grace, it's progressive. And that we're never content with our gifts, but also with our spiritual attainments, that we press on for the prize of the mark of the high calling of God. We hear the Lord saying to us, be perfect as I am perfect. That is the standard, nothing less. Here are the standards laid out for us. So you men who are ministers, as many of us here tonight are ministers in training, you're to have a regular examination of your life by these qualifications for confession of sin, but also for setting goals and, and moving forward uh, in your life, daily seeking increased conformity. I mentioned setting goals. It was a very, in God's providence, a good passage to conclude the uh, 2020 on. Because New Year's are always times to set goals. So in this passage, we've talked last week and this week about a number of things that I've sought to apply to you as church members, as Christians, as well as those men who will either uh, prepare for the ministry of the eldership or those of us who are ministers. What we need to do now is look at these things, look at our lives. Um, have a time of spiritual reflection, a year in inventory. And, and don't be overly ambitious. I'm not talking now to the men, but to the regular church members. But take some of these things. Identify your life. This is something I need to develop in, uh, loving my wife more sacrificially, rearing my children, being submissive, uh, developing a kind and, and gentle spirit, or perhaps I lack moderation and I need to work on, on moderation. Um, I murmur and I complain. Uh, pick some things, Set some goals that by God's grace in 2021, you're going to work on these things. You're going to come to the Lord's table intentionally thinking about your sins and weaknesses and, and um, 
seeking God's grace and strength to grow in those areas. You're going to speak to Christian friends or spouses, and I want to work on this this year, and I want you to hold me accountable and, and help me. Now, the same is in terms of our growth in knowledge. Think of what kind of books you read this year, or how many or how few, and say, I'm going to read this many more books, godly good books in, in 2021. And just set that goal that by God's grace, you're going to uh, increase your grasp of truth. And uh, plead with God to grant you these things, because the glory of all this is that the shepherd, who is shepherding us through the under-shepherd, has purchased for us not just our acceptance with God, but our growth in grace and godliness. He is the dispenser of all of these things. And they're ours in Him because we are His heirs and His joint heirs. And God wants us to have these things. And God gives us these things for Christ's sake. And so seek them in Him. And don't despair when you see the failures and the sins because He's also the great means of our pardon. But remember, with pardon, there's power. There's power. We don't need to say, I cannot change. We must say, I will change by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because I died with Him and I've been raised with Him. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.